Well, please turn back with me in your Bibles to Psalm 21 and have that psalm open as we come to study it together this evening. Psalm 21. Last week in the evening service, we considered Psalm 20 under the theme before the battle. And this evening, we look at this next psalm under the heading after the battle. After the battle. Sometimes you meet maybe a couple of siblings and you know immediately that they belong together. You can so clearly see the resemblances between them. And maybe boys and girls, sometimes you tire of hearing how you resemble a brother or sister. When my brother and I were children, some people often asked if we were twins. I could never quite see the, the close resemblance that they saw. Uh, but even if two people don't look very similar, uh, just by the way they interact with each other, spend time together, you can perhaps see that they belong, they, they fit together. Well, Psalms 20 and 21 certainly belong together. One preacher has said that there are no two Psalms more clearly and deliberately paired together in the Psalter than Psalms 20 and 21. And hopefully we've seen a little bit of why that is the case as we've read through both of them over these last couple of weeks. Both Psalms were written, as far as we understand, by King David for an important moment in the life of the nation and the king a time of war, a battle to be fought. And of course that could have applied to many instances in David's life. But Psalm 20 is a psalm intended for the moments before the battle, as we saw last week. And Psalm 21 is a psalm uh, fit for singing after the battle. Last week in Psalm 20, we thought about the importance of worship before warfare. The fact that David and his people went to the place of sacrifice and worship before they marched onto the battlefield. They were acknowledging that only God could help them and that they were totally reliant upon him for the victory that they needed. And this psalm picks up exactly where Psalm 20 left off. We're now looking back on what has just happened and the victory that has been won. And in many ways, that's also the position we find ourselves in today as Christians. That our King, the Lord Jesus, is victorious. He has won the most decisive battle on our behalf by his death and resurrection. And so we today, who are his followers, can reflect on life after the most important battle. Even as some of our own battles continue. And so we want to keep those dual perspectives as we make our way through the psalm this evening. Uh, just two headings to help us navigate the psalm. Uh, first of all, we consider tonight thanksgiving for victory secured. Thanksgiving for victory secured. If you look at verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. So there's this wonderfully thankful and joyful theme and, and, and tone in the psalm as we begin. Victory and delight in that victory is being celebrated. And there is obvious overlap with Psalm 20. If you look, uh, for example, at Psalm 20 verse 4, the people prayed that God would grant the king his heart's desire. And we see here that that prayer has been answered. Psalm 21 verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire. What was prayed for, what was hoped for, has now been granted. Verse 3. You meet him with rich blessings. 
The picture there might be from the ancient world when two parties would meet uh, perhaps along the road or perhaps at a fixed location, perhaps having travelled many miles or after uh, important moments like, like a victory won. And the two parties would exchange gifts. They would show honour and respect for one another. You might think, for example, of Abraham meeting Melchizedek, that high priestly figure in Genesis 14. And we read there of how Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. And what David is saying here is that when he marched out onto the battlefield, God met him with blessings, success, strength, endurance, and above all, victory. Verse 4, he says, He, that's the king, asked life of you, that's God, and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. We'll come back to those words in a moment, but for David and the people in their immediate situation, this means that David's life was preserved by God, quite simply. He wasn't struck down in the battlefield. God protected him, extended his life. And David might be thinking also here of how God has protected and extended the life of the people. Because as we thought last week, victory for David meant victory for Israel. And so God, by granting victory to David, grants life and freedom to the nation. David might also be thinking here uh, of the promises, the covenant promises of God. Uh, Remember in 2 Samuel 7, how God promised David that Uh, His throne would last forever. There would always be a son of David to reign upon it. And David here perhaps is rejoicing and praising God because he sees at least partial fulfillment of those promises. If you look at verse 5, he says, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. Notice here the humility of David, friends. He, He acknowledges that his own glory, that the respect and the, uh, and the, the fear of the nations. He, he does have those things as, as a mighty human king. But he says, he says that these things have come to him through your salvation. In other words, whatever glory, whatever respect, whatever power David has in a human sense has been given to him by God. It, is pos- it has been granted to him through the, the victory, the salvation that God has given to him. So a few weeks ago in, in Psalm 18, how David continually gave all the credit for his own greatness to God. And that continues here in Psalm 21. Any respect or fear that people had for David was only because of the greatness of David's God. Verse 6, he says, you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. There's what David loves and longs for more than anything else. Uh, He wasn't a perfect king, of course. But what set him apart from most, if not all, of the kings that came after him was that his, his heart yearned and longed for the presence of God. He had a relationship with God. Remember, he had brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, that symbol of God with his people, guiding them, answering their prayers, and blessing them. So quite rightly, after the battle, David is full of thanksgiving. It's entirely appropriate that he comes and expresses praise and thanks to God for what God has given to him. 
And of course, in doing so, he's, he's setting an example for his own people. He's showing them what they also should be doing. This was a psalm for all the king's people to sing. Just as Psalm 20 was a prayer for all God's people to pray before the battle. And so we see the thanksgiving of David in this psalm. But just as with Psalm 20, Psalm 21 takes on new depths of meaning in Jesus Christ. A fellow preacher of mine has said that reading the Psalms is like going for a swim in the ocean. Maybe some of you were out uh, at the coast this weekend. Uh, Hannah and I were at a, a packed beach for a walk the other day. And, uh, and when you see people at the, at the seaside, you, uh, there are really about three different levels that people tend to, to go in uh, into the water. Some of us are quite happy just to paddle along, dipping nothing more than our toes in the water. We're not going to go any further out than that. Uh, others maybe go in waist deep and plunge in and out a little bit. And then the braver ones, perhaps with the, the top of the range wetsuits, they'll go on further out, maybe taking a, a, a canoe or a surfboard or something with them. And, and they'll be right in the depths or as safe as it is to go into the depths of the ocean. Well, reading the Psalms, you, you can dip your toes in them if you like, meaning you, you can think about what these words first meant for King David and his people. You could go in waist deep, if you like, and, and see how what applied to David maybe applies to us as believers today. Or you can go all in and you can consider how the Psalms find their deepest meaning and fulfillment in the work, person and work of the Lord Jesus. Remind you again of Jesus' own words, Luke 24, verse 44. Everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so the Psalms, like all of Scripture, friends, tell us about and point us towards King Jesus, not just the life of King David. And Psalm 21 is no different. You're looking again at verse 1. Did Jesus not exult in the salvation planned by his Father? Luke 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus there was praising God, not just for the the good report of the mission that his disciples had gone out on and, and now completed, but for God's gracious will, the salvation that God planned for all his people. Through the work that Jesus himself came to do. Psalm 21 verse 3. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Gold of course denoting uh, authority, majesty, kingship. Well Jesus today is sitting on the throne of heaven. Whether or not he wears a literal crown. He certainly is crowned king of kings. Lord of lords. The righteous one, the royal one, the majestic one, the saviour of the world. What about verse 4? We dipped our toes in the water as we considered David's position. But consider the new depths we go to when we think of these words in relation to Jesus. Verse 4. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. 
When you consider how Jesus Christ has received life, resurrection life, everlasting life from his Father, his work on earth finished, his death on the cross once for all, and three days after his death, his vindication, his being raised again to eternal life. And such is the victory of our King that he hasn't just secured eternal life for himself, but for all his people. Verse 5 speaks of God's glory bestowed in God's King. And we've already thought about how David enjoyed a measure of fear and honour and respect, reflected glory from God. But Colossians 1 verse 19 says that in Christ, all the fullness of God was made to dwell. David reflected some of the splendor and glory of God to his people. King Jesus displays all of it. And it's not reflected glory, it's his own glory. It's the glory of God, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And King Jesus has won the greatest victory. And by faith, Christ's victory at the cross over Satan and sin and death is our victory too. And not a day should go by, friends, when in our prayers we're not giving thanks for the victory of Christ. Not a day should go by when we don't think again of what Jesus accomplished for us. It's in his name, the name of a victorious king, that all of our prayers are even possible. In a sense, we we cannot pray, we dare not pray, except in the name of our victorious king. But not only should we return thanks to God for the victory of our king at the cross, the, the most decisive victory, we should return thanks and praise also for those smaller victories that God gives to us, perhaps on a daily basis. When we ask for help to get through the challenges of another day, just in our workplace or in our homes, the responsibilities we bear of being Christian workers or Christian parents, Christian homemakers, well, we should return in prayer at the end of the day and give thanks for the help and guidance and grace that God has provided. When we're convicted, perhaps, over some particular sin in our lives with which we're struggling, covetousness or anger, lust, impatience, whatever it may be, and we ask for God's help and we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to defeat those temptations, well, when we do get victory, over temptation, we should return in prayer and give thanks for the victory that God has provided. When we sit at the bedside of a loved one and we pray for their comfort and we pray for their reassurance in the last days of their lives and they die well, testifying to the grace of God, though we mourn their loss, we should return in prayer and give thanks for God having shepherd, shepherded another one of his saints into glory. Spurgeon commenting in this psalm says, If we pray today for a benefit and receive it, we must, before the sun goes down, praise God for that mercy, or we deserve to be denied it the next time. We must have thankful hearts. How often have we received so many good things from God Perhaps we've been so concerned to pray about something that's causing us anxiety and concern and it's the right response to anxiety to to bring that to God in prayer. But do we then give thanks for a victory won? 
after the battle, after prayer is answered, in the name of King Jesus, who has won the greatest victory of all, we should return as much praise and thanks as we possibly can to our gracious God. Thanksgiving for victory secured. But then secondly, and finally, certainty for a victory still to come. Certainty for a victory still to come. Verse 7, in some ways you could say, is the key verse of this psalm. It says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Right in the heart of this psalm, we have the, the foundation, the rock on which God's relationship with David is built. And verse 7 really applies both to the victory that David has just had and to the victory that he envisages in the future. And the reason for both is the steadfast, gracious, merciful, covenant love of God. The reason that David can speak of life and length of days forever and ever is because God has promised it to him. As we considered already, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. God said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. God had promised these things to David. <coughs> and because God had promised it, David knew that there was just no way that it wouldn't happen. That's what covenant is all about. God making his gracious, merciful promises to us. And we are to respond with faith and trust and obedience to those promises. That's why David says here, the king trusts in the Lord, verse 7. And that's the explanation for the victory that David has had. And for the victory that he still hopes to have in future. That's the explanation for the victory of Jesus. David's greater son. I wonder do we consider that often enough that the trust that God the son displayed in God the father. Jesus in his humanity had to believe and submit to and obey the will of God and he did. Hebrews 12 verse 2 describes him as the perfecter of our faith that he has given us a perfect example of faith to follow. And he endured the cross because of the joy that he knew would come afterwards. The, the trust that he had in the plans of God. God brings his covenant promises to us. We're to bring our covenant obedience. Like David did and like Jesus did. So the first half of this psalm has outlined the blessings that come when we obey God's covenant. Victory, eternal life. Joy in the presence of God. Verses 8 to 12 spell out the curses that will come upon those who refuse God's covenant love. Who turn their backs on his grace, graciousness and live in disobedience. And it's perhaps providential uh, that we consider these things this evening. Having considered what we did from the book of Jude this morning. In fact if you glance at the two headings from uh, the sermon this morning and, and the one this evening, um, the certain judgment of imposters this morning, and tonight the certain certainty for victory still to come. Look at verse 8. 
verse of Psalm 21. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. The same right hand that we so often sing about in the Psalms that helps and rescues those who love God. It's also the hand to be feared by those who hate God. Verse 9 is especially vivid. Another example of that theme of judgment that we considered this morning. You will make them as a blazing oven. One translator has like an oven on fire when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Verse 10 says you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. And this is all in contrast, friends, to what we were just thinking about in terms of what the king has received from God. Eternal life, blessing for his enemies, death, eternal damnation. Verse 11 says, Though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Verse 12 says, God is ready to strike them down like an archer is ready to fire his arrows. Jesus' victory has been secured. All that remains is for that victory to be made fully known and for those who continue on in rebellion against him to finally be stopped. And again, it ties in with this morning, but when we pray for the kingdom to come, friends, we need to realize that that involves the final destruction of God's enemies. We thought this morning about how we're not to be discouraged when we have that sense, well, evil is just in the ascendancy. Sin and wickedness just seems to be winning all the time. No, there is the certainty of the judgment to come. Spurgeon says, none can escape the wrath of the glorious king nor is it desirable that they should, he says. He says it's not desirable that any of God's enemies would escape his wrath. Why would we want there to be any trace left in the world of those in rebellion against our God? Why would we want there to be any trace left in the world of rebellion against our great and glorious King? If Jesus appears tonight or tomorrow... Or if God brings your life to an end and you find yourself facing Jesus the judge, where will you be standing? Will you be one of those who belong to his glorious kingdom, who have trusted in his steadfast love as King David did, who will look forward to entering into the joy of God's presence? Or are you going to be among those swallowed up in the wrath of God? thrown into that blazing oven of his wrath. And what of us who know and love people who at this moment are heading for that, heading for fire and for misery? Hell is real. Eternity is eternity. And you're either with this king or you're against this king. One writer says, never tolerate slight thoughts of hell or you will soon have low thoughts of sin. Sin's a joke in our world today. In fact, the whole concept of sin is essentially lost. It's not even called sin anymore. Even in 
large swathes of the professing church is being excused away. People are being welcomed in who do not repent of sin. Welcomed into full membership, that is. In some cases, welcomed into full leadership of, of the church. Who are living in sin, as the Bible uh, defines it. And even amongst Christians, friends, sadly, the Lord's Day is often ignored, desecrated in ways that we didn't see generations ago. And the answer from some Christians when we would protest that is, oh, don't be a Pharisee. More and more toleration is being extended to people who live a lifestyle totally immoral and perverted according to the word of God. And even amongst Christians, there are those who would say, well, who are we to judge? We are either with this king or we are against this king. Either we're committed to his, to his commandments and by his grace to obeying all of those commandments or we are not. His victory is certain. It is being publicized by God's grace. That's the witness of the church. It hasn't been fully publicized yet. But one day Jesus will return. And he will certainly take his people to himself. And he will certainly condemn his enemies to the fire of judgment. Until that day comes, our task is to make known as widely and clearly as possible that now is the time of grace. Now is the time of God's steadfast love being made known and being received. And so we should be spurred on to spread the good news of the gospel, friends, because the return of Jesus to judge his enemies is certain. And many of the people around us still must be counted as those enemies. But look how the psalm concludes. Verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. We are to witness as best we can. We are to plead with people and explain to them who the king is and the victory that he has won. But we are also to worship. To gladly worship. To give praise and honour to the God who rescues. All week, every week, we are being reminded of the the, the, the lack of capability, the, the fact that men and women are incapable of being our own saviors no matter how much we try. Everything is stained and ruined by sin and sorrow in our world. A brutal war starts and seemingly has no end in sight. The word crisis is being used for more and more of the situations in our land. Cost of living crisis, economic crisis, political crisis. <clears throat> governments let their people down those who are often celebrated the rich and famous are exposed as unfaithful immoral foolish and yet in our own culture people are determined to be their own saviors as if it just takes for us to achieve a little more work a little better figure a few more things out the Christian knows that that is a waste of time it's a lie of Satan. We do not have the power to save ourselves. Only our great king can do that for us. And he has. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. You make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. A wonderful eternity. Celebrating the splendor and majesty and victory of our king 
is offered to each one of us today. It's God's power. It is God's grace that saves us. That deserves to be sung about and celebrated and shared with the world. Do you belong to King Jesus? The one whom this psalm ultimately tells us about. Is that what you want to sing and celebrate more than anything else? Many people have been singing and celebrating all kinds of things even today. In stadiums and concert venues and in all kinds of other places around our world. Surely it gives us most joy and most delight to sing about these things. To celebrate these things. The life that our King can give. Is that true of you today? Or are you at this moment in time headed for the fiery judgment of hell? May all of us have the eagerness and thankfulness of David. May we acknowledge the power of God that has saved us. May we sing and praise the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we make known to the world the certainty of the judgment to come. Amen.